This is the Loop Ventures Neurotech Podcast. I'm Doug Clinton. On today's show, we are joined by Gordon Wilson, CEO and co-founder of Rain Neuromorphics, one of our portfolio companies. Rain develops brain-inspired hardware that enables superior scale and efficiency for AI. Gordon and I talk about how the brain informs the development of their hardware, the research efforts that drive new discovery at Rain, the limitations of other approaches to AI hardware, and the importance of sparsity and wide learning. I thought this episode was a really great discussion about the intersection of brain science and computer science. So with that, I bring you Gordon Wilson. Gordon, welcome to the Loop Neurotech Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Doug. So to get started, first I will say that in full disclosure, Loop Ventures is a proud investor in Rain Neuromorphics. So we are certainly biased by that fact. But let's get started with the easy question, which is, could you tell us just about what you are building at Rain Neuromorphics? Absolutely. And yeah, we're super thrilled, super thankful to have you guys at Loop as investors. You've been great partners in this journey so far. But yeah, at Brain Neuromorphics, we build brain-inspired processors for artificial intelligence. I'm the CEO and co-founder, and we state that our mission is to enable brain-scale intelligence. So we're doing a lot of different things. We're fundamentally building hardware, building a really new type, kind of a very unorthodox type of microchip that is intended to perform the mathematics underneath artificial neural networks, which... If you've been following artificial intelligence, you know that artificial neural networks are these massive and growing family of algorithms that are fundamentally inspired by how neurons and synapses work in the brain. And they're used for any of the most, I think, exciting and most compelling AI applications that we're aware of today, like computer vision or natural language processing or voice recognition or generative models, what have you. Artificial neural networks are underneath it, and there's a certain type of math that is underneath all of those. So we are trying to essentially reimagine a processor to do this math because currently it's just extraordinarily expensive. And to give context to just how expensive artificial neural networks are, there was an article in MIT Tech Review, I think, in June. And I think the title was perhaps a little bit hyperbolic or trying to elicit a hyperbolic response, but it was true in the sense that it said one AI model can consume as much energy as five cars, five American cars in their lifetime. And they're referring to a natural language processing model that is basically for the lay listener, just a neural network that understands language in kind of fundamental way. So not just recognizing words, but understanding meaning. But this model, just to learn, took it was like $40 million and thousands of kilowatts of energy. So in order to take that intelligence and put it into interesting places, you know, like put into our phone, put into a robot, we need really much, much better hardware underneath it all. You mentioned the concept of brain-inspired hardware right at the beginning, which you know how to speak to our audience, certainly, because this is a neurotech podcast. So maybe the first place I want to dive in is what brain-inspired hardware really means. You know, I know just from working with you that RAIN is heavily influenced by sort of the discoveries and principles of neuroscience, but could you build the bridge between the worlds of AI, computer hardware, and neuroscience and what it means to be brain-inspired? 
Absolutely. Our name is Rain Neuromorphics. And neuromorphic engineering is a field that isn't actually that new. It's been around for about 30 years. And it literally means neuro brain morphic in the shape of. So we're building a chip that is within this family of neuromorphic architectures, which are brain inspired. But brain inspired when it comes to designing AI hardware can mean a few different things. And for us, we're really looking at how do you connect many neurons together in a way that is brain like? And how do you look at the brain as a way to scale to build a very large network? Essentially, what we're doing is we're taking a new type of wire, right? So we have created this new type of very, very long, very, very thin wire that serves as axons and synapses. And we're also using a special material in this wire called the memristor or a device that you create with special materials. And for also the lay listener, the memristor is a memory resistor. It's broadly considered the ideal artificial synapse. Fundamentally, in our chip, the key innovation that we've created is using these wires, these special new wires with memristors, to fit many, many, many more neurons onto a chip. So to kind of give a little more context than that, conventionally, you put neurons on edges of a chip with these types of neuromorphic architectures, and you fill the entire chip with the connections in between them. Our chip we have neurons everywhere in the chip, end-to-end, edge-to-edge, and we put these wires on top. But to zoom out even more, so that's the kind of the core innovation in our technology, that we were using these wires to just fit more neurons into the same amount of space compared to any other chip out there. But we really look at the brain for our inspiration across many high levels. In this case, with this core, with this first innovation, it's the interconnect and the synapses and really the architecture of the chip. We look at algorithms too. We look at the materials themselves. And one thing that I think of that really differentiates, I think, a brain-inspired approach to building hardware versus a conventional approach to building hardware is you have to kind of look at all of the pieces in a far more holistic and integrated way than you would in conventional computer architecture design. Conventionally, the people who built the transistors were kind of in a silo you know, at Intel, they would build the transistors, make the smaller features, and then they would pass that on to the chip designers. They would build the chip, the architecture. And then once the chip is done, once your new CPU is made or your GPU is made, you pass it on to a programmer and they do something with it. We're designing our hardware, looking at all of these things in tandem. We're designing our algorithms with the materials in mind, with the noisiness of the materials and stochasticity of those materials and figuring out ways to not just mitigate the noise, but to harness it, which is something our brain does. You know, our brain is a very noisy machine that has lots of irregularity and unpredictability, and yet somehow it learns extraordinarily well. So we look all the way up and down. We look at the architecture, the algorithm, the material, because we have a huge way to go. And I think one last thing, an emphasis on why really we want to be brain inspired is because fundamentally, the brain is just an extraordinarily efficient and extraordinarily massive computer. The brain is 86 billion neurons and half a quadrillion synapses. And it runs in asynchronously in real time. The biggest artificial neural networks that people have made today, so those ones that take thousands of kilowatts of energy to train, they are on the order of maybe a million neurons and maybe a billion synapses at their most. So we have five orders of magnitude of scale to go. 
And of course, the brain is running on 20 watts of power. So we see a huge amount of inspiration in the brain to be derived in terms of iterating towards more brain-like, more efficient, and just smarter hardware. That sums it up perfectly. You know, we could just end the podcast now. That's brain-inspired hardware. But putting it in that perspective of the number of neurons that the brain has versus the most complex to date artificial neural network. I mean, it's tremendous that that scale difference, you know, five orders of magnitude is amazing. And when you were mentioning the Memristor and some of the work that you're doing at Rain, I was reminded of a paper and I know Rain, you know, as a company and the team there are very active still in research as well. But I remember a paper, and one thing that your co-founder, Jack, I think wrote in the paper was that in the brain, there's no distance between memory and processing. And I always thought that that was such a simple but profound statement where a, a typical chip there is. And so the question I wanted to ask is, as you think about the research that the team does versus the development, it's obviously hard to separate it, but how important is the research you do around the brain and the architecture of chips that are inspired by that versus other external research about the brain? Like how do each pieces of that influence what you're building at the company? That's a really great question, Doug. And yeah, and just to emphasize on your prior point, one of the biggest differences between our brain and conventional processors is, yes, that separation of memory and processing. And the exciting part about the memristor is it allows you to co-locate those things, to process information through a memory element. But touching on research, I'd say there's like a very interesting balance between what we're trying to achieve as a research producing organization and also what we want to be contributing to and receiving from like a broader ecosystem of researchers. So for one, we dedicated ourselves from an early phase to being a publishing organization and having one eye towards the research world because simply we're building an architecture that we believed was extraordinary. We were making extraordinary claims and you know, one of our core values is skepticism, and we want to build the credibility among those who are the most skeptical, which is the scientific community, to build, I think, the scientific consensus around that this is possible, what we're trying to build. But we work a lot with other people, actually, as well, to help build and reinforce the broader story and broader narratives that we see about hardware and about AI even more broadly. So for one, you know, the largest independent AI research organization is OpenAI, and their CEO, Sam Altman, is our largest investor. And we've also worked now quite a bit with folks at OpenAI who are studying different types of kind of the next generations of artificial neural networks. And for us, that type of partnership is so extraordinarily valuable because we're a seed stage company and they are a very well-funded organization that can run massive simulations that are very expensive. But their research, at least this group that we've been working with, has been really looking towards how will neural networks grow? How will they perform as they get bigger? Because we know they have to get bigger in size and scale. And so with these guys, they're basically doing a lot of exploration of expanding the size of neural networks, expanding the layers, making them not just deep, but also wide layers in neural networks, and demonstrating a lot of the core intuitions that we believe to be true, that we understand to be true, but using these massive compute resources to actually run these models and reinforce that. So yeah, so we work with OpenAI, but you know, I think looking 
even further out at just the way, like what are the elements I think in back in your question that are brain inspired from the broader literature. But yeah, but basically I'll describe it the way my CTO, Jack, you know, who's I'm really lucky to get to work with describes it. And originally AI and neuroscience were heavily influenced by each other. The origins of AI were strongly influenced by the fundamentals of neuroscience. But over the last eight years, deep learning has been pretty separate from neuroscience. And people publishing in deep learning, building these GPU-based models, weren't really looking at neuroscience as much for the inspiration on what to build. And meanwhile, neuroscience, computational neuroscience, has picked up, as I'm sure as you know, and become a much more booming field and a much more rigorous computational mathematical field. And we see hardware like ours and other brain-inspired hardware as potentially being the bridge to allow for the mutual study of both neuroscience and of AI. Because ultimately, there are massive lessons to be transferred, I think, between these two things. Yeah, I mean, on the back of our shirts, we say, to understand the brain, you need to build one. So a big motivation is that as we build these things, you know, we will be informing ourselves about ourselves uh, and about our own minds. It's amazing. I love the slogan is very apropos. Let's dive in then to the hardware landscape. Obviously, today, people are probably familiar with AI development happening on GPUs. Maybe they've heard of TPUs or ASICs. How do you think about that current landscape and the cost associated with it that you mentioned before and where the neuromorphic evolution fits into that? Will it completely replace you know, these things that we're using today, GPUs, TPUs, or will they live in coexistence? GPUs, I think, I spent a lot of my time when I'm talking to customers or potential investors, I think maybe boohooing GPUs a little bit or pointing out you know, some of their fundamental limitations. But I think that the GPU hardware has to be commended for what it's enabled us to achieve. So for the, the lay listener, you know, GPU is a graphics processing unit. These are primarily developed by NVIDIA. And this is hardware that was originally designed to render graphics. And the reason why graphics rendering hardware was the natural hardware to use for artificial intelligence, for neural networks, is because they use the same math, underlying mathematics, which is matrix multiplication. So in a GPU, the matrix might represent pixels if you're doing graphics, but in neural networks, they represent the synapses, synaptic weights and the activations, i.e. the information moving from layer to layer. And GPUs have been able to take us a while in the last seven, eight years. The, I think the AlexNet paper in 2012, which broke the benchmark for computer vision, was really this inflection point when everyone started throwing not just one GPU, but many GPUs at problems. But there's a fundamental physical limitation to what we can achieve using that type of hardware. And GPUs are what are called digital hardware, right? So they are hardware that uses zeros and ones, binary logic at the very bottom, to ultimately calculate discrete math, so exact calculations of mathematics. And when you're simulating a neural network using a GPU, you have to calculate each one of those little matrix algebra pieces one by one. You have to do all that math in the logic itself. 
And the fundamental difference between a GPU and a CPU is it has many little processors, many processors that can do math at the same time, as opposed to a CPU that has like one big processor. So even though we can parallelize this math and GPUs can do it a lot faster, there's a limitation to really how parallel you can run this. I think the most cutting-edge recent GPU has 4,000 individual cores, so that means it can do 4,000 pieces of math at the same time. Now, this is where I'm also going to now draw a comparison to the brain and talk about parallelism. Something that makes the brain really special is it's not a serial computer. It doesn't wait for one calculation to happen or to do another calculation, but rather the entire brain can kind of operate at the same time in parallel. It can do lots of little operations simultaneously in, in different locations. A GPU moves us in that direction because it allows us to go from the CPU that can just do one calculation at a time to however many cores you have on that GPU. The problem is that we're still nowhere near the brain. You know, 4,000 cores is, you know, maybe you can do maybe the equivalent of 4,000 whatever synaptic operations. It comes nowhere near the scale of the brain, which is, you know, on the order of 86 billion neurons and half a quadrillion synapses. So we see this fundamental limit with GPUs and all GPU-style hardware. And there's a lot of hardware recently, because this is a problem that industry recognizes, that is kind of taking that GPU approach of many core processors and honestly pushing it to its logical extreme. You know, there's one company that... And I commend them because it's very, very cool what they're doing. They've built the world's first wafer scale chip. It's like a chip that is the size of a dinner plate, and it's intended just for this type of parallel processing for neural networks. And in this case, they have 40,000 cores. So it's like, how many could you possibly, if you dream up the craziest chip imaginable, in this case, a chip that's the size of the whole silicon wafer, you know, you can parallelize that. But we see that as, as kind of a brute force way to solve this problem. So you have some companies building hardware that looks a lot like a GPU, but is maybe just making it bigger or doing lower precision logic or doing what's called data flow optimization, where you kind of break up the network into multiple pieces and allocate different parts of the chip to different parts of the network. But as long as you're using digital logic, which, as we said before, separates memory and processing and requires you to perform each of those calculations in the logic itself, you'll, you'll reach a physical limit. You'll just never get anywhere close to the scale and energy efficiency of the brain. So I'd say that's one category of hardware that we see, the people that are taking GPU stuff, pushing it to its extreme. The other category of hardware that we see is trying to solve a different type of problem, which is really taking existing AI models and putting them in new places, where the prior category would enable us to just scale up our networks. This category is taking our current AI that we understand, like facial recognition or simple voice recognition, and allowing us to put it into kind of smaller form factors. So this is a lot of like the edge AI market that's sometimes called. But these are chips that you could put in your 
Bosch oven and say hello to the oven and say, turn on to 350 degrees, and it would understand that and perform that all locally. Or it's a chip that could enable a simple facial recognition in a security system at your home. So you can have the residents of the home, their faces be memorized, but also have all that data stay in your system at home. So we kind of see the basically the hardware, the new hardware markets moving in these two directions. The scale, throwing more computing power to allow us to continue building bigger neural networks, and then the efficiency guys. But we don't see anyone that can kind of tackle both, that can support a big neural network and enable that to be put into an efficient form factor. And that's where we see kind of our emerging niche of hardware. To go back on your question as well, you mentioned one of the challenges with neuromorphic hardware, like will it replace GPUs or will it complement them? Well, I can speak to our hardware, certainly. And the way we intend to go to market is supporting a single operation and doing it really well. So offloading one part of the neural network to our hardware, that's the most computationally expensive, which in this case is the biggest matrix that you may require of that network, which corresponds to the biggest layer in that neural network. Offloading that to our hardware and then just letting the rest of the network run on a standard GPU. So we want our hardware to be useful without requiring everyone to completely move over to an entirely different hardware and software paradigm. But in the long term, we will be building systems that allow us to completely move off of the GPU. We think for the earliest adoption, it makes sense to make it kind of easy to integrate. But ultimately, we want to build robot brains. You know, we want to build massive networks that are capable of solving extraordinarily complex, continuously learning tasks and be able to put that inside of a device that can run on its own. And that's something that a GPU won't be able to do that you'd have to be, I think, a fully neuromorphic system to achieve. If we think about the cost side that we were talking about earlier, is the goal basically to take the expense of AI from something that costs as much energy or consumes as much energy as five cars, like we talked about earlier, to maybe something that just consumes as much energy as a smartphone in a single day? What's the right comparison or parallel, do you think, in terms of the direction we're going? I would say that that's exactly the comparison that I often use myself. I often say, you know, we're building hardware that will enable us to put GPT-2 on your phone. And for the listener, GPT-2 is a natural language processing network that was developed by OpenAI that got some interesting news, some basically because it could generate fake news articles, it can generate a lot more than that. But that's one of these models that is about a million neurons, about a billion synapses, and is taking thousands of kilowatts. But we're building hardware that could enable that to be in a form factor that could fit inside your, your hand. So you can have a seamless conversation with an autonomous device. And as the market starts to adopt neuromorphic chips, how will that influence how software developers create their algorithms, right? Like I imagine there's sort of this symbiotic relationship between the capabilities of the hardware and how they think about software development. Absolutely. So we're designing our chip so that it doesn't require a massive paradigm shift in the way people approach how to program it, the software. We want our hardware to be easy for 
a data scientist to use without requiring them to learn a whole bunch of new things. But in order to fully realize, I think, the ultimate potential of hardware like ours, you know, we should be looking at different approaches to programming, different approaches to training neural networks. One thing that I think will change that neuromorphic hardware will enable is today, people really look at training a neural network and running inference of that neural network. And I think also to clarify for listeners, training is learning, inference is doing, right? Training is when you show the network, you know, a million pictures of faces and label all those faces and then inference, it just goes out in the world, needs to recognize whose face is this. But right now, because of the nature of our hardware and just how expensive in particular training is, People look at training and inferences as like these separate jobs that you train a neural network up front, you teach it what you want it to learn, and then you load that model either on the same hardware or other hardware and deploy it, right? And this could be in the data center where it's just quick inferences on your Facebook feed, or it could be in your cell phone, like quick inferences on recognizing words or something. Now... Today, people separate inference and training. I think in the future, we won't see that clear of a demarcation between these two. And really, this is insight that reflects the way the brain works, because we don't stop learning, right? We don't learn everything up front and then go out into the world and do things. You know, we are continuously learning from the examples of our environment as we interact with it, as we are doing. You know, we are continuously adapting and continuously learning creatures. And neuromorphic hardware has this promise to be just that, to enable devices to continuously learn and adapt because they can make it so much cheaper and you can combine training and inference onto the same hardware. And that'll require software engineers to reimagine how do we program these devices such that they are continuously taking in inputs for training, but also able to do rapid inference. So that would definitely be a shift, I think, in the way people are, are designing these programs. I'm glad you brought up this idea that the brain doesn't stop learning. I think that's a really important insight. And I would add, not only do we not stop learning, but we also learn many different things that all sort of interconnect in some way. And I know we've talked about this idea of, you know, the current AI paradigm is deep learning. You've talked about this idea of wide learning. I'd love to dive into that and just give a description of what is wide learning in your sense and how does that compare to deep learning today? So, yeah, to give context, deep learning, I mean, most listeners who have been following AI, I'm sure, have heard of what deep learning is. It's become almost a buzzword of sorts. But deep learning just refers to a neural network with many layers, with many transformations of the information. And if we go back in history, the first neural network that was built, or I think it's the first or the second, was called the Mark I Perceptron. And this was this guy, Frank Rosenblatt at Cornell, built a single layer neural network. And it was the size of a room. It had 400 inputs that were then connected to a single layer of neurons. And in retrospect, people looked at this, and even though this was like the cover of New York Times and people were saying it would gain consciousness, it did not become conscious. One of the key limitations of that hardware was that it only had one layer. So by adding new layers, adding more layers to neural networks and making them deeper, we allow for 
complexity to kind of be extracted from the information. You know, sometimes we think of layer by layer, like in a convolutional neural network, the first layer recognizing the pixels, the second layer recognizing lines, the third layer recognizing shapes, and then so on and so forth until you get to the face. So these transformations happen layer by layer. And deep learning we've been able to explore because to add another layer to a neural network cost-wise isn't that much more expensive. Now, wide learning, width, refers to how big the layers themselves are, how many neurons there are in that layer. And this directly corresponds to how much information that layer can take in. So if your input layer has 10 neurons, that means you only can take 10 inputs, right? You only have like 10 pixels of an image or 10 frequency channels of a sound. But if you have a thousand neurons in that layer, you can now take many, many more inputs. You can have a higher dimensional input, like a higher resolution image or a more complex sound, or you could have vision and sound and sensory input all coming into the same network. So as you increase the width of a layer, it means it can take more information in at the same time. The problem with exploring width, and not that we want to, we want to explore width, the challenge is it's so expensive that as you increase the width of a layer in a neural network, the cost and complexity of performing that in hardware increases faster than the width increases. So really, it becomes really costly. And so as a result, people haven't been able to explore these wide layers. And it's not just information, i.e. it's not just allowing for more inputs. You know, there are other things that width does that allows us to create what's called sparse activity. So if you have a thousand neurons, maybe you only need to use a hundred of them at a time. And that actually makes the network more stable. Again, and this goes back to the brain. The brain is incredibly sparsely active. You know, of all the neurons in our brain, only a small number of them are activating or spiking at any given time. And yet when we look at today's artificial neural networks, these deep neural networks, because we can't make them that wide, we're using all of the neurons in every layer. And what people are now seeing, that using all the neurons in a neural network actually makes it really unstable. It doesn't like that. Kind of, it makes it very susceptible to noisy inputs. Whereas if you make the network just a whole lot bigger and allow the information more room to kind of wiggle around, it is much more stable and can learn multiple things at the same time. So there's this really incredible intuitions with wide learning that really, I think people are just at the cusp of being able to explore this. Like there are for these folks at Numenta, which uh, I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with, the Jeff Hawkins team, you know, they're exploring this with wide learning. And of course, our friends at OpenAI are also doing so. This is one of the key things that our hardware will enable. We make that scaling of width much cheaper. And we enable that because we're utilizing something called sparsity, where you don't need to connect every neuron in one layer to every neuron in the next layer to sufficiently transmit information. And so we want to make that width cheaper so we can build just far larger neural networks in that dimension and explore what's possible that way. It seems like there's a huge amount of possibility as we can just make our neural networks wide, but we got to make it cheap to do it first. That's great. The, the sort of implications of those quiet layers or quiet neurons, are, it's really fascinating to think about how that could impact development of AI in the future. Absolutely. 
We need to build bigger systems fundamentally. One of the reasons why our brain is so robust is because information doesn't kind of interfere. You know, there's this thing called catastrophic interference in neural networks, in artificial neural networks, where if you learn one task, if you teach a neural network one task, and then you teach it a separate task on the same network, it'll forget that first thing really quickly. Our brain doesn't do that because there's enough places for information to settle. And then when you learn something new, it doesn't perturb you know, those lessons you've already learned. That's awesome. And that actually, I think, is a great lead-in, Gordon, to my last question, which is a fun one. Are there any books or papers or resources that you have found particularly inspiring for you as you've thought about these connections between the brain and hardware and the direction of AI? So I would say I'd recommend to anyone listening, if you haven't looked at the OpenAI blog, you definitely should. OpenAI has a fairly prolific blog, at least a post every month, discussing their research and the directions of the way they see AI moving in the future. And, you know, I think that they do a really great job of, they are still very technical, but they write it in a generally accessible way. And also they have some really amazing visualizations. I would also recommend On Intelligence by Jeff Hawkins. I love to learn through conversation and through community. And that's one of the reasons why I think I, I really love my job as the CEO of this company that I get to be surrounded by so many people who are smarter than me in their domains. I would say finding communities and meetups that are interested in these things, whether virtual or in-person, is one of the best things that anyone can do to kind of become more informed in this space. But yeah, and, and I think that the last recommendation I would give, which is not directly related to necessarily neuroscience, but he writes about neuroscience, Tim Urban at Wait But Why. Honestly, he's just been an incredible inspiration to me because he does what I aspire to do, which is explain really complex, far out technical concepts that people would assume to be inaccessible and explains them in such intuitive ways. So for any listener that hasn't seen Wait But Why, I think the longest interview with Elon Musk and talks about Neuralink there. Uh, he talks about the AI revolution. So certainly he's connecting the, dot, the big picture dots about AI. I would highly recommend that. Yeah, I would second. All three of those recommendations are great. On Intelligence is one of my favorite books about how the brain functions. And we actually had Jeff on. He was a great guest. It was a fun podcast, if anyone hasn't listened to it yet. He's our neighbor just down the street. We're a five-minute walk. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Good neighbor. And I know on the OpenAI blog, they just, if anybody hasn't seen it yet, we'll put a link in the show notes, but they just posted a video of a robotic hand that they programmed doing a Rubik's Cube in like four minutes, which I think is faster than I can do one. So the robots are already winning. It's pretty incredible. We'll leave it on that note. Gordon Wilson, CEO of Rain Neuromorphics. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Doug. Appreciate it.